You are listening to Gung Ho Eco, and I'm your host, Maya Lilly. I have a very special treat for you today. I'm talking with my colleague and friend, Starhawk, with whom I'm working on the TV series of The Fifth Sacred Thing. As many of you know, The Fifth Sacred Thing was published by Bantam Books back in the 90s, but it has a long-standing, devoted following and has been a touchstone for activists and environmental change makers for the last 20 years. It's been continuously in print since 1993, has sold over 100,000 copies, and been translated into four languages. And Marion Zimmer Bradley, another great novelist, actually said that it was slated to be one of the great visionary utopian novels of the century. Well, Starhawk has written a sequel to The Fifth Sacred Thing. So those of you who love the first book, you're going to love the second one even more. Here I am chatting with Starhawk about her process. So Starhawk, I loved reading City of Refuge, um, and I had a few moments where I thought it was actually better than the than the first, than the Sacred Thing. Um, well, you know, that just warms my heart, Maya, because, of course, my huge fear writing it was, oh my God, what if it's not as good as the Fifth Sacred Thing? What if everyone who liked the Fifth Sacred Thing is disappointed and... Uh, I'm really happy to hear from you. And also I've heard from other people that they're not disappointed, that they really like the book. And yeah, some people really like it even better than The Fifth Sacred Thing. When did you decide to write a sequel? Well, I had always thought about writing it, but you know, it's such a big time commitment to write another work of fiction. And in some ways, really, the time to have written it was probably right after writing The Fifth Sacred Thing. Um, but I actually wrote the prequel, Walking to Mercury, then. Right. And then I felt I needed to take a break and write some nonfiction. And then I got involved trying to save the world, which is a big time commitment as well. Um, but a couple things happened about four years ago. One was that we were working on bringing this all to the screen. So I was writing screenplay and writing, uh, a pilot and the characters started to come alive again and started to talk to me. And I started to think about where their story might go and, and just become immersed in the world once more. And also, at a certain point, I turned 60 and had to kind of look into the future and say, oh, well, what I really wanted to do in life was write fiction. I haven't actually written that much fiction. Um, I can't let another 20 years go before I start writing fiction again because I might not have more than about another 20 years left. So if I want to do it, I better do it now. So do you have a very particular process on a daily level of how to sit down and write? Do you need a quiet space? Like, do you have to be alone or can you do it anywhere? Yeah, people always ask me, how do I get started? How do I write? And I always tell them, you just have to write. Uh, (laughs) It helps to have a quiet space. Um, I am lucky that I have some land out in the country where I can go and be out in the woods and just wake up and sort of go directly from sleep to meditating to being, you know, sitting in nature for a little bit each morning and really opening up and listening to what the natural world is telling me. 
and then drift into writing. And generally, I'll write all morning and into the afternoon. At some point, I'll have some breakfast. Uh, I don't turn on the internet until after I've done my writing for the day. That's probably my number one tip for anyone who wants to write. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I am very disciplined about it. I've learned to be over the years, and I travel so much and have so many other commitments, and I kind of have to be. When I have some precious time to sit there and write, uh, I just I can't afford to spend it filing my nails and cleaning the house, uh, although really both those things, you know, could be beneficial, <laughs> right? But I really have to actually just put everything aside and write. Yeah, Clarissa Pinkola Estes in Women Who Run With the Wolves talks about how women douse our fire, our creative spirit, by constantly attending to small tasks. <laughs> yes, and there always are small tasks, large tasks, things that are much more pressing than your writing. But if you want to write, you have to really commit yourself, treat it like a job, don't schedule things during those precious hours and write. Now, when I was researching psychic abilities recently, I realized that there are a few different types. There's like clairvoyant where you see things. There's clairaudient where you hear things. There's clairsentient where you feel things. When you're thinking about your characters and the story arc of characters, do you hear them talking? Do you see them interacting? Do you feel them? How does it manifest? I would say all of the above. If you really put yourself into creating characters and visualizing them, then they start to come alive. You see them. Um, you hear them speaking. Sometimes I will hear dialogue, you know, without quite knowing at the moment of, okay, where are they sitting and what are they doing and, you know, how are they actually physically interacting? Um but what I try to do is get down what I do hear, what I do see, and then kind of go back and fill in the other senses. Mm. Mm -hmm. uh, I have a tendency as a writer, I think because I try to visualize so strongly, to maybe give too much detail sometimes. You know, I'll tend to say, like, she stood up, she turned around, she faced the stove, she put her hand on the handle and opened the door, uh, she looked inside, she saw the toast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The toast was hot. Saying, you know, she took the toast out of the oven. Right. right. And sometimes that level of detail is useful and sometimes it's not, it can get in the way. Uh, especially in screenwriting and dis action description, you know, where you have such limited space for a story, I've had to really control that urge to completely describe every aspect of every action. But I've also heard that a lot of professional writers um, resist the urge to edit while they're doing a first draft because you need to just get it out before you can, like, start and edit yourself. Like, what's your process of editing? Um, that's true for me. I do do a first draft where I just get it all out. And it's almost like trance writing or something. Sometimes I'll just close my eyes and just write. You know. 
and then I do a second draft that's a lot of the fleshing out and also the structuring. Now, how do all these pieces fit together? Because they don't always come through in the chronological sequence that uh, either of the story or even of um, the sequence that they're going to ultimately have in the book. Um, and then I'll do a third draft to go clean that all up. And actually on City of Refuge, uh, I think I did five full drafts and then sent it to the developmental editor who worked with me on it. And I did a sixth draft with her and then had it copy edited. So it's a lot of editing. <laughs> so do you do like a, a, a original kind of first story arc? before you start going just um, streamline writing? Do you kind of like edit out the, the character's arcs first and the overall story? Uh, no, maybe I should, but I tend to just have a vague idea of where I'm going and start writing. That's really brave. <laughs> That's really brave because a lot of screenwriters say you have to like develop the story arcs first. Because then, like, how do you, what, what happens if you get in trouble where you can't connect certain story arcs? <laughs> well, I felt lucky with The Fifth Sacred Thing where I really had no idea where it was going that in the end it all came together. Uh, in yeah. The City of Refuge, I did have in my mind um, kind of a rough arc for each not even so much an arc, but sort of for each character, it's kind of like, uh, what is their shift going to be? What What is their tragic flaw or what is their weakness that they need to work on and how is that going to develop? But I find the richness of it actually comes through the writing. Uh, I think it's different in screenwriting where structure is so key and so important. And again, where you have such a limited time to develop a full story. I think for that it does make sense really to plot out the arc ahead of time and get the action and the structure down and then let the dialogue come. Um, but for a novel, one of the gifts of writing a novel and one of the joys for me after working for a long, frustrating time trying to boil the fifth sacred thing down into a screenplay uh, was just you can expand, you can let things happen, you can digress, um, you can let characters talk, um, you can explore ideas, um, you can really create a whole world. One of the things I loved in the novel was uh, your fluid ability to update the current environmental problems that we're facing into the newer novel. So like when you wrote Fifth Sacred Thing, nuclear was a big part of the conversation. And now City of Refuge includes things like drones, which <laughs> didn't exist. Um, did you have any hesitancy with how much to update to kind of keep the through line with Fifth Sacred, with the previous story? Well, fortunately, even in Fifth Sacred Thing, climate change was very much a feature. Um, you know, there were a lot of the aspects that we knew about 20, 25 years ago when I was writing it um, that are just even more present right now. Um, I was so grateful for our drone program in a warped sort of way. <laughs> 
was mm-hmm. one of the questions I had is kind of, you know, how can Bird commit himself to nonviolence and still, you know, get to be a little bit more of an action guy than he was in The Sacred Thing? So the drones were perfect for that, you know, especially not even so much in the novel, but as we've been working on the screenplay and the pilot, like, uh, you know, you can shoot them out of the sky, right, and not actually be killing people or hurting people. Um, right. So, um, but, yeah, it's always a challenge because, on the one hand, you want to update, and on the other hand, things move so quickly and technology develops so quickly you know, it's hard to leapfrog enough ahead of it so that it hasn't caught up and passed you by the time the book comes out. Right. That's the trick. You know, I was recently, I listened to Ursula Le Guin's The Dispossessed as an audiobook, And that's a book I had read, I think, back in the 70s and really loved. And I loved it again as an audiobook. But there are things you kind of recognize where they have like computers spewing out like you know key punch cards <laughs> right yeah better and go back and go oh right this is like 70s technology right with no um no way to imagine at that point what computers would be now mm-hmm. four years later uh another thing i love about the new novel is uh your expounding on characters that we've already met and also the addition of new characters, um, mm-hmm. such as Isis. I, I've always loved that character, and so it's nice to see her story arc. Are there any characters that, like, kind of called out to you before you created them and or are your favorites in City of Refuge? Well, uh, one character is Smokey, who's the pen girl who is liberated when the North manages to throw the Southlanders out. And she really kind of popped up and called to me just with her incredible rage and her incredible heart. And um, River, who's the soldier who defected from the Southlands, uh, becomes a much more major character in City of Refuge and just following his story, you know, imagining what is it like to be someone who is really bred and born and raised from toddlerhood to be nothing but a killing machine and what does it really take for that person to change and to crack and to come alive and um, really work toward becoming a full human being. Um, hmm. And the other character that sort of popped up is uh, Livingston, who's uh, a naval officer. He's actually, well, I won't spoil it, but just say he's with the Southlanders, and um, he plays a sort of very duplicitous role in the book. And of all of them, he's like the one character, like everybody else in the book is kind of morally driven. Even the villains, but he's like the one totally amoral character. And as he developed through different drafts, um, I really became very fond of him. (laughs) (laughs) 
he served like a breath of fresh air, you know, with everybody else having all these agonizing decisions and things. He's just like, well, how's this going to benefit me? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You kind of need that as a counter with, yeah. with very moral people. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so without maybe last question, without giving away any spoilers, um, what do you think is kind of the main theme of City of Refuge? For me, the main theme, you know, for me, a novel always starts with a question. And City of Refuge really started with the question, how can we build a new world when people are so deeply damaged by the old? Mm. And... I think all the characters as they move through the story, to me, kind of embrace and experience and wrestle with that question, both themselves and with the people they encounter in the book. Mm. Yeah, one of my favorite quotes has always been uh, the head of the Bread and Puppet Theater from the 70s said, Mm -hmm. you have to offer the people a vision of a better life so strong that they will insist upon realizing it. Yeah. And I think that's what you do, Starhawk. (laughs) Oh, thank you. (laughs) Thanks for listening. And please remember to like, comment, and subscribe to our podcast. The more people that like it, the more people can hear it. I'll see you next time.